Our first reading this morning comes from the uh, book of Matthew, and I'll be reading from uh, chapter 1, verses 18 through to including 20. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with a child through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man, he did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. And if you could turn with me again to the start of Matthew, uh, Matthew chapter 1. It's going to be reading uh, along from our first reading, which is Matthew chapter 1 and starting at verse 21 and reading through to verse 25. So that's Matthew chapter 1 and starting at verse 21. Let's hear from God's word. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he had no union with her until she gave birth to a son and he gave him the name Jesus. Well, friends, as we take a closer look at this wonderful passage, let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that we have a reason to worship, a reason to give thanks. And that is because of the Lord Jesus and him coming into the world. Father God, we pray that you might impress that truth on our hearts now. Uh, Lord, that our hearts might be yours. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Well, friends, if you weren't here last week, you missed out on a real treat as we all collectively dug in and got enthused and excited about something we don't normally get all that enthused and excited about, the genealogies in our Bibles. And in particular, the one that you can still see if you have your Bibles open at Matthew chapter 1. Now, if you weren't here last week and are now wondering to yourself how much can actually be said about a great long list of names stacked up one after the other after the other, Well, Matthew in verse 17 of chapter 1 broke it down for us, telling us that if you divide all those names by three, you get 14 followed by 14 followed by 14. And it turns out this three set of 14 basically gives us a grand overview of our Old Testaments. How so? Well, the first 14 contains the story of God's promise to bless and not judge a world that it's turned its back back on him. This promise is first given to Abraham and then fleshed out further to David. That is, a worldwide saving king is going to come through him. 
Next 14 tells the story of the exile. That is the nation who came from Abraham not only fails to bring this divine blessing in, but they lose everything. Everything but the royal line. The golden chain miraculously remains. As such, so too does the promise. This takes us to the last set of 14, and this final group reveals the true exile Israel are in is not physical but spiritual. David's line might carry God's promise, but it has become crystal clear not one of Israel's kings is going to be able to bring it in. And that, friends, is the Old Testament story of Israel in summary, in a nutshell. But if that's the story, what next? What of God's promise to bless the world if this nation, this line of kings, clearly will never keep their side of the bargain? Well, writes Matthew, hold that thought, that question, because something pretty interesting happens right at the end of this genealogy. If you still have your Bibles open, have a look from verse 15. Eliad, as you see there, is the father of Eleazar. Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. You see how the pattern works. Pretty simple, isn't it? But watch what happens next, says Matthew, in verse 16. Jacob is the father of Joseph. And Joseph the father of Jesus? No. Joseph is the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So every other male gets the father tag, as they should, but Joseph misses out. Oh, he's the husband, all right, writes Matthew. Mary has never been with anybody else. But Joseph is not Jesus' father. And friends, that little bit of information right there needs some explaining. Not the least of which to Joseph himself. And so Matthew now switches from genealogy mode and goes into explanation mode. Over in Luke's gospel, we get Mary's side of the story, don't we? But here, Matthew zeroes in on Joseph's experience, Joseph's reality. And what a reality it must have been for this young man, almost certainly still in his teens. There he is, very much in love with his childhood sweetheart, full of hope, full of excitement and expectation as he dreamt of starting a brand new life with the love of his life. But this dream, as we know, is about to turn into a nightmare. And many of us deal with relational stresses and strains at this time of year, don't we? But this relational bombshell that is about to explode for Joseph is next level stuff, isn't it? So much so, there's no way that I can now convey in words the complete devastation that this young man is about to experience when he sees the unmistakable change in his beloved Mary. Let me tell you about why this change has taken place, writes Matthew, verse 18. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, But before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. 
Now that's great. That's wonderful for us to hear. But if you are the husband-to-be and you don't get that spoiler alert, different story. And that's Joseph. He is left completely in the dark. Mary, on the other hand, as Luke tells us, is given a heads up even before it happens to her, isn't she? And so when it does happen, she's not worried and she's not confused, but races off in great excitement to tell her pregnant cousin Elizabeth. And so everyone's leaping for joy, including little John inside Liz's tummy. So it's all smiles. At such great times that Mary stays with Elizabeth for the next three months. And before we think that was a little mean and unthoughtful of Mary to leave hubby to be on the sidelines like this, well, guys, just imagine if the love of your life excitedly rushed into your arms, telling you, number one, she was pregnant, and number two, how it happened. Now, Mary knew this information must come to Joseph the same way it came to her, from above. And so, having returned from her cousins, she kept quiet and continued to plan the wedding with Joseph. All the while, her clothes getting more and more ill-fitting. Until what was going on was unmistakable. And so the gut-wrenching, crippling, heart-breaking devastation. And this, friends, was the real-life experience of this young man we often think so very little about. It's Mary who takes center stage next to Jesus in that nativity scene. While Joseph is really not much more than an add-on, is he? Soon to be completely forgotten. But before we do, we need to be aware of the integrity, the beauty, the innocence and wonder of that nativity scene rests on this young man's reaction to a pregnancy that he knows he has absolutely nothing to do with. And this reaction of Joseph is recorded by Matthew in verse 19. Have another look at it. Because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, friends, it's interesting when you think of the great men of faith in the Bible, our minds often go straight to a man called Joseph, doesn't it? But not the Joseph here. But the other one, the other one who was sold as a slave into Egypt, the son of Jacob who keeps the faith despite rotting away in that jail cell. But this second Joseph, born centuries later, also walks the narrow path. And it's no less rocky, is it? For who here, if hit with what Joseph was hit with, had to look at, day in and day out, could honestly say that we could ever even consider doing a verse 19. And to resolve in your busted, broken, beaten down heart, not only to walk away, 
but to do all in your power to see Mary and this other person's child to come out of this in the best way possible. And friends, the more you reflect on this decision, the more you see this Joseph is right up there with the first. His faith blasted with just and intense a fire. But here's the point. Those flames, rather than burning him up, reveals the gold. The quality of this man's faith. A faith that works itself out in love. Friends, as this last week has shown, the fires will come and the flames will burn. But the Bible tells us the purpose of the heat, whether a little or a lot, is always the same. To reveal what's holding us up. What's holding Joseph up? Well, check out verse 19, says Matthew. And so with Joseph's structure clearly revealed, the angel now comes to him and douses the flames. Verse 20, have another look. But after Joseph had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Your suspicions are 100% correct. Mary is with child, but through a miraculous divine event. Why has this miraculous divine event actually taken place? Well, the angel continues. She will give birth to a son and you are to give him the name Jesus. Or more accurately, Jesus, which comes from the Hebrew Yeshua. Now, friends, why is it out of all of those Hebrew names on offer, this Joseph must no ifs or buts give this special child this particular name? Well, if we break it down, Yah is an abbreviated version of God's personal name, while Shua means save. So name him God saves, says the angel because that is what this miracle child has come to do. That's his purpose. So what is he going to save his people from? Now surely Israel's political and physical imprisonment, their exile. After all, how can God's people be God's people while Rome flies their flag over Jerusalem? Impossible. Well, let's hear the, the answer from the angel. You are to give him the name God saves because he will save his people from their sins. In other words, this child is not going to take on the enemy out there, but the real enemy, the one in here. Because 14 by 14 by 14 generations, since that great promise was given to Abraham, all nations blessed through him. 14 by 14 by 14 has revealed the real problem. And that problem is not evil Rome, but the evil roaming around in here. So call him Jesus, because he has come to bring the blessing in 
by taking on sin. Now, friends, considering all that Joseph has just experienced, it's probably a pretty safe bet to say when he woke up from this amazing dream, he probably didn't think a whole lot about how this divine child was going to live up to that name, how he was going to pull that sin victory off. Now, his mind was also almost certainly back on Mary and the wedding. But on the off chance, he did think about Jesus' name and what it meant. Chances are he didn't venture down that thought bubble for long. Because, friends, as a faithful Israelite, Joseph knew there was one way and one way alone that forgiveness for sin is achieved, brought about between God and man. And that way was through putting your hands on a living, breathing animal at a special altar. This was to show not only were you recognising your sin before God, but your hands on this lamb or bull was to signify you were offering its life for yours. A substitute who will take the penalty for your sin rather than it being on your head. Because as every Israelite knew, the wages of sin is death. And so this animal on the altar will lose its life rather than you. And friends, not to get too graphic, but the way this was performed was to sprinkle its blood, was to splash it around. Because the blood signified the forgiveness transaction had truly taken place. You will call his name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Now, friends, how much Joseph thought about that whenever he spoke this name, called it out as Jesus was growing up, who can know? But someone who most certainly did do some thinking on it was John, John the Baptist. Remember his very first words when he laid eyes on him at the Jordan River? Look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Three years later, in an upper room, Jesus takes a cup and affirms John's proclamation with these words. This is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And then the very next day we get this exchange. Have a listen. What shall I do then with Jesus who is called the Christ? The crowd answered Pontius Pilate as one. Crucify him. Why? What crime has he committed? But they shouted all the louder. Crucify him. Let his blood be on us and our children. And so it was but in a way that secured not their condemnation, but opened up the way for their salvation. He will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And nowhere did his people's sins become more apparent, more clear in all its ugliness and horror and rebellion than in their hate-filled rejection of this son and the blood he spilt. They laid hands on him, all right, but in so doing, 
the greatest exchange, the ultimate sacrifice for sin took place, whether they knew it or not. Friends, Joseph's love for Mary is one thing. It's an awesome thing. But the love that this little child in Mary will one day show is on a whole nother level. A giving of his life for those who clearly don't deserve it. He will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And the way this salvation was to take place was determined by God well in advance. Look at how Matthew makes sure we don't miss this, makes it crystal clear as he continues. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. What is it going to take to fulfill God's promise to bless the world? To bridge the gaping chasm between God and us caused by sin? Well, friends, take the Bible out of this world and every other book in the world, bar none, will tell you there is only one way to bridge that gap and that's us finding a way. That's us moving toward him. Open your Bibles, though, and we get the exact opposite. God makes his way all the way down to us. Friends, you know why there is so much persecution of Christians all around the world? Because even the thought, even the notion that the holy God of the universe would move one inch toward us is blasphemous. It's anathema. But Matthew writes, God didn't simply move one inch. No, the holy, perfect, righteous creator came into this world as a hopeless and helpless child. Not hopeless, but helpless. Born in a stinking shed, no less. And then he grew up in a two-bit town called Nazareth. Dependent on his parents to clothe and feed him. Then as an adult, he underwent the daily frustration of being insulted and misunderstood by both friend and foe. All of this before we even get to the cross. The ultimate injustice, the ultimate humiliation. God came to us in flesh and bone to have his flesh and bone beaten and whipped and spat upon and ultimately crushed. Not possible, impossible on every level imaginable. Impossible for us to imagine. But here's the truth, says Matthew. God foretold long ago through the prophet, the virgin will be with child and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. And so it happened as God promised And that's why Joseph did not quietly divorce Mary, but stuck around 
took the sideways glances, took the humiliating whispers, because Mary's growing tummy was a sign to Joseph that God had humbled himself for him, for all, that we might be saved from ourselves, from our sin, and return to him. And so the day finally came when he took this child and laid him carefully in that manger. A picture to him and us, not merely of the wonder of life, but the wonder of the giver of life. Holy, powerful, righteous, yes, but at his core, a heart that beats with an unfathomable, incomprehensible love that he would come to us in such a way, determined not simply to be born into this world, but to die as our perfect sacrifice, that we might not simply know his love, but finally be back in a love relationship with him once more. And that's the Christmas story. A story of God's gift of his love to you, for you. Have you received it? Our Heavenly Father, it it truly is impossible not to despair when we look at the world around us, Lord, particularly some of the news, some of the events that have happened just this week. Not to mention all that has happened over the last couple of years. Impossible not to despair. Impossible not to think that we have been abandoned completely on our own. And so, Father, we thank you that even though that's what we deserve, that is not the case. Father God, we thank you that you determined to keep that promise to Abraham, to bless and not judge. And Father, we truly cannot and probably never will be able to get our mind around the miracle of the Incarnation. That in Jesus, Emmanuel, you are with us completely and fully in flesh and bone. And then, Father, what you did through your Son to bring us back to yourself. We thank you, Father, that in Jesus, in the Christmas story, light absolutely shines through the darkness and cannot snuff it out. Now, Heavenly Father, sometimes, though, we feel like it is being snuffed out. And so, God, we pray that you might impress upon us again the wonderful truth of Jesus coming to earth to save us. And by your Spirit, hold on to us, Lord, and help us to live for you until the end. And we pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.